Let's open up to Matthew's gospel again, Matthew 19. And we're looking at a marriage series that is going to take a, a hard right into the topic of singleness. So we're going to talk about singleness this morning. It's a, kind of a personal topic, and uh, it's one I think that should hit home in terms of uh, the way our culture is trending and a Christ corrective that needs to be inserted in terms of what singleness is and what it is truly supposed to be and what it is not. Um, there's good reasons to be married, biblical reasons to be married. We've talked um, at length about those reasons so far. And there's good reasons to be single also, and there's bad reasons to be single. And we're going to talk about that um, today. Verses 1 through 12 of chapter 19 is where Jesus is confronted with a question about marriage and divorce. And can you divorce um, the Pharisees sort of trapping Jesus saying, can you divorce a wife for any cause? Verse 3, can you, can you just throw your marriage away for any cause? Because the law made an allowance for that. And Jesus had to deal very skillfully with that, but instead of taking their question head on and falling into the trap by making the marriage commitment just loosey-goosey and just making it open for everything, or from constricting it to a point of saying, no, there's no cause whatsoever, he went back to the beginning and said that this is God's dealings. Marriage is God's covenant-making design that is from the designer. He designed a man and a woman and created marriage as between a man and a woman only. Monogamous marriage, marriage for life, that kind of covenant where he brings two together to become one flesh. It's all part of the Genesis creation story. And by Jesus recounting that, he's, he's kind of blasting apart this idea of easy come, easy go marriage mentality that the Pharisees were trying to promote and also trying to trap Jesus into um, indicting himself and perhaps getting himself put in a dungeon or being beheaded like John the Baptist was for going against Antipas, the ruler of the day who had been in sin. So they're trying to trap Jesus and he goes back to the original design, which points to the designer The design of marriage is part of the fabric of our society. It's how procreation happens. It's how population happens. And it's everything that our world is against because they're against the accountability of what marriage means. Marriage covenant means that you're committed to someone else for life. And the reason you're committed to that person is because God has willed it to be that way. He's the designer of marriage and people don't want that accountability. They want to make their own rules. But then... Jesus is not now questioned by the Pharisees, but if you'll look at our passage this morning in verse 10, the disciples come up and they want to take up the the Pharisees' position. Jesus had said that there's one exception for divorce, and that's the hardness of heart. It's an unrepentant spouse who, in this case, commits porneia or sexual immorality and There is an allowance for divorce, verse 9, for sexual immorality, where there is a hardened heart, verse 8, it's unrepentant sexual immorality. 
And the standard, though, is so high that the disciples even go, look, if that's the only exception, if that's the only way that a marriage could dissolve, then they ask this question. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. It's better not to marry. Just go into singleness. Like, why would you ever want to get married if the only way out of that marriage is a hard-hearted situation? where there could be a dissolution of a marriage. Why would you want that? Why would you want to be stuck with somebody else for all of life? And the disciples were thinking that way. But let me just say, the, the society around us thinks that way. Like the world around us is promoting singleness more and more and more. And the world is promoting cohabitating with another single and pretending you're married, but staying single. And it's all in light of getting out from under God's design and God's accountability. Listen to some, an article I pulled from the internet. It's uh, The Hill, the, and it's titled, uh, The End of Marriage in America by Joseph Chamey. It's 2020 is when it was written. It says, while it may not have ended, marriage in America has unquestionably declined over the recent past and is now at historic low levels in the, for the country. It's probably lower now. 20th century, an annual U.S. marriage rate was generally no less than eight marriages per 1,000. The marriage rate also varied considerably over the years of the past century. It's declined to around eight marriages per 1,000 population, and that decline was at the Great Depression and peaked at more than 16 marriages per 1,000 at the close of World War II. So things trended back up. Since the start of the 21st century, the U.S. marriage rate has declined from more than eight marriages per 1,000 to six marriages per 1,000, and that's per uh, population survey of 2019. Um, That marriage rate is the lowest level since the U.S. government began keeping marriage records in 1867. Also, 70 years ago, a large majority of U.S. households, approximately 80%, were made up of married couples. In 2020, the proportion of households consisting of married couples fell to 49%. Some of the major factors behind long-term decline in marriage rate have been female education and labor force participation, women's economic independence, and gender equality. This is a secular rationale for what's going on. And then it says, America is also experiencing growing numbers of women and men living alone, as well as an increasing unmarried cohabitation. In addition to 15% of the U.S. adults living alone, no less than one quarter of those aged 25 to 34 years old are living with an unmarried partner. This is called secular singleness, secular singleness. And it's a trend that's growing. People are avoiding marriage or they're suspending being married, but they're playing married even though they're not. So there's good reasons to be married and there's bad reasons to be married. People claiming singleness but living like they're married with no commitment is a bad charade as if they're married, but they're really not. Christ contrasts all this thinking with a preferred exception that he calls singleness. I'll call this kingdom singleness. This is the exception to God created man, God created women, a woman, and brought them together to be the prototype example of what is the ideal in life, 
in fa- the fabric of society populating the earth, showing the covenant commitment to- between Christ and his bride. Every marriage does that. So what is singleness? What is kingdom singleness as a category that is also worth fighting for? Jesus is fighting for marriage, but now he fights for singleness, kingdom singleness that portrays a kingdom picture, just like marriage portrays Christ and his bride, a kingdom citizen who is a single picture something as well. Jesus, as the perfect human on earth, right, fully God, fully man, was single his whole life. He portrayed the gospel. In his singleness, Paul followed Christ as a single, had an undivided devotion to the Lord and kingdom work as a single. They promoted things. In the church, there has been this sort of subtext that that you'll kind of hear of, and maybe it'll echo in the back of your mind if you wrestled with being single for a long time. These are some of the things that people say and talk about and they disparage singleness in a way that, that blurs the picture of what it's supposed to promote. Um, Tim Keller, in his, the late Tim Keller, who just died, he wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And in that, he cites an article written by Paige Benton Brown that's called Singled Out by God for Good. And she's sort of bringing up these negative narratives that people wrestle with. It's as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special in your life. When you reach full satisfaction, God's blessing is earned by contentment. Wait, you're too picky as though God is frustrated with you being fickle. Here's another one. As a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work as though God requires emotional martyrs. Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you wonderful. And I'm glad that's not true. God grants marriage as a second blessing to be sanctified. Beneath these statements is the premise that single life is a state of deprivation for people who are not fully formed enough for marriage. I mean, this is, you know what these, all of these phrases are, are works righteousness, religion in the church. As if you have to earn your position before God before he will bless you and give you marriage. No marriage is perfect. No single situation, single's life is perfect. There's good reason to be single. There's bad reason to be single. There's good reason to be married. And there's bad reason to be married. There are all, any number of varieties of ways that we enjoy life, love the Lord, and suffer. So you have to follow God's word carefully to find the joy and to endure the suffering in whatever context of life you're in. And I said this before, um, this is a marriage series where Jesus fights for marriage, but he's fighting for marriage as a single. And now he's fighting for kingdom singleness as a single. Both are glorious pictures that picture and portray something greater than the situation that someone finds themselves in. If you're married... This is not a sermon for you to pray for singleness. If you're single, this is not a sermon for you to pray for to be married. You're just finding contentment in the Lord's providence in your life and trying to develop the right picture in the midst of it. I'll speak from the heart for a minute. Um, from age 17 to age 25, I was single and, and, and a fiery Christian. I love the Lord. I was raised in a Christian home. 
um, you know, was baptized as a seven-year-old because I walked forward and believed I was a Christian and, you know, had affection for the Lord and kind of fell away, lived a pretty duplicitous party lifestyle for several years as a teenager. At 17, I gave myself fully to the Lordship of Christ. That's when I believe I was genuinely converted. During that time, I had great Christian friends, a circle of brothers who also were converted to Christ. We prayed together. Sometimes we'd pray like an hour long together, sharing our hearts with each other, building Christian friendship, community, Bible studies together through teenage um, times with young life, with youth group, with preaching, with evangelizing. We would have open-ended times where you could witness to somebody just into the wee hours of the night and witness to whoever and just keep doing it because you had no other responsibility besides having to show up to work or to school. You just, all the rest of your free time, if you're given to the Lord and you do the Lord's work. We went to Sunday morning church. We would go to Sunday evening church. When our churches wouldn't have Sunday evening services, we would find other churches with Sunday evening service. We'd go to Wednesday night church because what else are you going to do? We were just, we had undivided devotion to the Lord. And I'm not speaking hyperbolically. I list, I just did this. I, I read theological books. I listened to hundreds and hundreds of sermons by tape. I just, tapes are those plastic cassettes, reel to reel. Used to do that. And we had a lot of fun, Christians conferences, Christian concerts. I mean, you could just go and mission trips and things as a single young man all the way through my college years um, into my early adult first full-time job at Master's College, you know, late hour discipleship with a lot of young adults, a lot of young men who actually are in leadership positions today, not because I did anything, but I got to participate in fellowship with them really, really respectable missionaries, pastors, leaders, theologians. They were all in the dorms um, where we were around during those years. And I've seen the fruit of that in retrospect. But it was a life given to being single for a time. And that's where the Lord had me at that time. Then he brought Judy and I together. And life changed. Life shifted. Life multiplied. The capacities that I once had to pray and just go for it have, have not been at the same level they were when I was single. The freedoms are different. And the Bible speaks of that difference, and that's okay. But if God causes you to be single, like suddenly you're widowed or, you know, you, you lose a spouse or whatever happens, there's a divorce, a dissolution of the marriage, Yet there can be freedoms that are granted to you on the other side of things. One of my mentor pastors um, from... You know, from the past, he lost his wife to, you know, full-blown cancer, and his kids are now adults and out of the home. He had eight kids. I'll talk to him on the phone. He's like, yeah, I'm in a very quiet house now. But he's also traveling around the country, traveling around the, the globe to minister to pastors and build people up and use all of the time that he has in his early 60s, all the wealth of knowledge he has to pour out because God has given him this gift of singleness right now. So uh, to borrow a phrase from John Piper, who made, made the sermon and book, Don't Waste Your Life, if you're single, don't waste your singleness. If you're in the, the body of Christ and you know singles, don't waste their singleness. Build them up in it. Invite them into your home, into your family. Adopt them and equip them and promote them to do the work of the Lord in undivided devotion. Because they're having to fight off all those narratives that I just read. All the time. Those are temptations. Hey, am I good enough? What's wrong with me? What happened? If I would have done this, if I could live my life differently, it would be different. That's a complete, abject, rebellious thinking against the sovereignty of God. 
God has you in your specific lot in life for a purpose. And he frees us for purposes that are greater than what we can even understand in our lifetime. And we have to remind people of the gospel and understand what William Barclay said in light of singleness. He travels the fastest who travels alone. If you're alone, you can really get a lot done in a radical way. All right, Matthew 19, verses 10 to 12. Christ is offering three paths leading to a life of singleness. Now, these paths are just kind of one building on the other to build to the ultimate true kingdom path. So they coalesce. One builds upon the other. It's really one path to kingdom singleness, but there's sort of three routes to being single, and we need to unpack each one of them. So again, verse 10. This disciple said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, if hardness of heart can enter into a marriage and dissolve it, and that's the only awful situation that dissolves a marriage, maybe we don't want anything to do with this. If the standard is that high, and that's the only way out, and then that way out is so horrible, I don't want anything to do with it. And so instead of Jesus addressing that head on and saying, no, yeah, you really do, he, he turns it the other way and says, no, you've got the wrong view of singleness. You don't just have the wrong view of marriage. You've got the wrong view of singleness. So let me unpack what true singleness really is. He says you have to receive it spiritually. Verse 11, he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. In other words, you need to open up your hearts and listen spiritually with spiritual ears and spiritual eyes to get this, but only those to whom it is given. Verse 12, here's the three paths. The first path, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Here's the second path. And there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men. Here's the third path. And there are eunuchs who've, been, who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who, who is able to receive this, receive it. In other words, you need to listen to this with spiritual ears and see what Jesus is saying with spiritual eyes and open your heart to the point. Without that, if you just read this raw, you're just going, what in the world? I think I know what a eunuch is and I really don't want to know anymore about what a eunuch is. I don't want to know about this. But the first point is this. The first path Jesus prescribes is providence determines singleness. Providence. Um, what do I mean by that? Verse 12. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Providence. Um, the disciples have been siding with the, <coughs> sorry, siding with the Pharisees. They're thinking marriage is too strict, too weird. And Jesus goes to the truth of God's word and gives a very, very clear, non-pragmatic statement. He says that it's providence that made certain people single. In other words, someone wasn't seeking to be single. Singleness found that person. They were born single. People who are mentally handicapped sometimes often remain single their whole lives. We know those people. It just is a reality. They, they're to be cared for. They're not caregivers. They're not going to be married. They're not going to care for a husband or be a husband who cares for a wife. They're not going to care for children. They're not meant to procreate. There are those who are 
inhibited biologically from procreating. This, this actually reminds me, verse 12, the beginning of John 9, where you have the man who was born blind and the disciples make the accusation, why is this man born blind? Because of his sin or his parents' sin, sin, I guess, that they believed he would do. And so he was being prejudged for that at birth because he was blind from birth. Obviously, a blind person can be married, but it's just similar language where Jesus' response is he's blind for the sake of the kingdom. Some people are born with the inability to procreate, the inability, they're never going to be married, and that's for the sake of the kingdom. It's by providence. It's just a providential reality that someone is born that way. That is their lot in life. What's been given to them. I think sometimes people struggle with this, with resting in the providence of God. But there's a second category here, and that is this, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Now, this is talking specifically about the physical reality of someone being made a eunuch, castrated, castration. This is something that Origen, the early church father, he took literally and applied the third path to himself to his own detriment. There are people who've been made eunuchs, and this is straight up paganism. Straight up paganism. It's pagan religion. It's actually the religion of our culture today with all of the transitioning dynamic that are going on with hormone therapy and people who are being mutilated or even the allowance of kids to be mutilated. There are even clothes designs now being promoted in our culture around this kind of gender reorientation that is scary. But be not deceived. This is not nouveau thinking or, you know, sort of open-mindedness that's positive. This is all straight-up paganism. This is wrong. It's going against the design. It's going against the designer, who is God. It all goes back to the beginning. So what, what does this mean? People have been made eunuchs. Well, the Bible has a kind of storyline about those who were castrated for specific reasons, and it's it's all pagan. Second Kings 9.32, you have the story of Ahab, and you remember Jezebel ultimately who was thrown out the window and killed for her sin um, unrighteously. It says in verse 32 of chapter 9, he lifted up his face, Ahab did, to the window and said, who is, that? Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. So eunuchs were present there. They were the ones who tossed Jezebel, And then 2 Kings 20, verse 18, you fast forward to um, the kingdom of uh, Judah that was being exiled into Babylon. And this is the horrible thing that's told to Hezekiah. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of king, the king of Babylon. In other words, your kids are going to be given over to Babylon as a curse. Then the story of Esther. There's a lot of mention of eunuchs there. Esther 1, 10 through 15, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded um, Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abtha, Zetha, Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served the presence of, in the presence of King Ahasuerus, um, to bring Queen Vashti. You remember Queen Vashti was Ahasuerus' wife, and she refused, she disrespected and refused to go in the presence of the king. 
And that angered, that angered him greatly. The eunuchs were, were the ones who were responsible to bring King Vashti, and he was burning with anger. This is all in Persia, and this is, you know, fast-forwarding in, um, you know, sort of the Bible's history of what is going on in the, king, the kingdom of Persia, and the Jews are there in exile, and you have Esther, who is like winning out on the beauty pageant because King Ahasuerus needs a replacement for Vasti, and he's calling for Esther. And you have eunuchs who are, who are there at hand to prepare Esther to be presented to the king as the new queen. So all that dynamic is going on. Ultimately, the story is interesting because in Esther chapter 2, in those days, Mordecai, her uncle, is sitting outside of the king's gate, and it says, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs were guarding, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So there was a conspiracy, two eunuchs who wanted to kill King Ahasuerus. So against him, Mordecai overhears it, turns him in, it gets chronicled. One night, Ahasuerus can't sleep, and so he has the books brought back in, and they're reading through it, and he, he's sort of illuminated or remembering the fact that Mordecai saved his life. And so the Jews ultimately were spared because of all of that. So eunuchs played that role. In Isaiah 39, this again is speaking about exile and Babylon. It says, some of your own sons will come, will come from you whom you will father, shall be taken away, and shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's the same kind of condemnation. Then you have the story of Jeremiah, who is actually rescued by eunuchs. He's prophesying against Babylon in Jerusalem, and he ultimately gets thrown into a cistern. And in Jeremiah 38, 7, and 8, when Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all the sight, in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there for hunger, for there's no bread in the city. And then the king commanded Ebed, Melech the Ethiopian, take 30 men with you from here and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So you have these pagans who also are doing some good things, you know, supporting Esther, Lifting, lifting Jeremiah out of the cistern in Daniel. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel. They're whisked away to Babylon. Again, in Babylonian territory, Daniel and the three boys eat the king's meat. You know, they're telling them, eat the king's meat, integrate, syncretize into paganism. You know, drink the proverbial pagan Kool-Aid, do it. And then... Daniel 1, verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in a worse condition than the youths who are of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king? Ultimately, Daniel, you know, in a trusting relationship, just said, the Lord, you know, give me vegetables, give me water to drink, I'll be fine, it'll all work out. And it did. It did. Acts 8 is the story of Philip, who is the deacon, the sort of superpower deacon of the early church. And he's witnessing as an evangelist. And he went out to this, this area where ultimately there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, who was there in Acts eight twenty seven. And you know that, that 
Ethiopian eunuch was um, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah and he's reading Isaiah 53 and he's reading um, in verse 32 of Acts 8, like a sheep who was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer was silent. So he opens not his mouth. What does all this mean? And Philip is able to say, this is about the Messiah. Ultimately, that Ethiopian eunuch is baptized in one. So what, what is the issue here? The issue that I'm making in terms of the story of the eunuch is you have something that was pagan, that ultimately you see these pagans who then are integral into the life and story of things working out in God's ultimate plan. And then you have at the end of the story, an Ethiopian eunuch where there's a clear heart conversion. So a pagan person coming to Christ. All of that is sort of a a lead in to the point Jesus makes, which is the true path of singleness. And that is the third path, which is piety determines singleness. Providence, where you didn't choose it, it chose you. You were born into a life of singleness. That is your lot in life. Then there's paganism, where people for paganistic reasons are choosing this path of paganistic singleness or it's chosen for them and it's a catastrophe. Then you have this third path where someone in their own heart is saying, no, I am going to be single for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, first of all, you need to understand that Jesus is using extreme hyperbole here. Just like in Matthew chapter 5, verse 30, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Obviously, physical measures are not what are in play here, but this is talking about 100% metaphorically, it's a person who says, I am as if a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. I am giving up procreating. I'm giving up the idea of marriage. I'm laying that aside because I have a gift. I have an opportunity that I see by divine design in my life, at least for the foreseeable future, to give myself an undivided devotion to the Lord. I'm going to open up or reopen my life into a single focus on the Lord. It's singleness being a preferred exception. Jesus never solves the heart issue with pragmatics or with religion, but this is solved by piety and devotion, full devotion to the Lord, a life devoted to the kingdom. Is this realistic? Well, Jesus had no deficit in life, none. Paul's life, there's no deficit, and I said this Last week and week before last, ultimately the Christian's journey begins in singleness and then in heaven it ends in singleness. In one sense, whether you're married in the, in the middle or single in the middle doesn't change that goal. The goal in the end is for you to be a single in heaven. Ultimately, heaven is a massive singles group. It is. It is. That's what Jesus said. You'll not be in marriage or given to marriage. You're like the angels. You're in heaven. We're all independently and interdependently, corporately worshiping as singles before the Lord, fully satisfied. And you say, yeah, but it doesn't work. It doesn't compete. That's because you're not God. He has that all figured out for us. And we don't have to understand it. 
Marriage pictures the covenant commitment God has to the group, which is called the church. The head and the wife. That's why marriage doesn't have to be perfect. Marriage should not become an idol. It should not become the be-all, end-all of what you live for. There's a lot of marriage movements. We're having a marriage conference. There are parachurch marriage ministries, but I get that. But don't be confused that that's the end goal of your existence here on earth. You know, oh, that I could be married. And then people who are married, and it's really hard. They go, oh, man, whew, those former days were easier what I really liked, you know? But that's just people not embracing with contentment whatever lot of life that they are given. So if you're single, don't waste your singleness opportunity. If you're married, don't waste your marriage either. And don't waste your opportunity to invite singles, to adopt singles into your life and watch God work. This is uh, another biblical approach that John Piper took that I, I'm kind of borrowing from uh, his book on uh, marriage. It's the temporary marriage book. It's the idea that marriage is temporary. It's the in-between. It's that idea. And he's, he, he brings up the fact that like in Ruth, you have the kinsman redeemer, you have um, you know, leveret marriage, you have this very clear protectiveness that the Jews had over their lineage, over their heritage, over the name being passed down for procreation that created the covenant family. And that was very, very strong. And that's important to understand how strong that was. You know, the, the genealogical lines in Matthew and Luke that go back to Abraham or go back all the way to Adam that promote Christ and how he got there from here and tracing that out is very important but in the midst of that storyline there's this other storyline that supersedes it goes back to the Abrahamic covenant in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed Genesis 12 Genesis 15 what does that mean all like like there's this innumerable amount of people who will be part of your family was that all through procreation no he's the father of faith Abraham believed God and it was reconciled as righteousness Conversion in the kingdom, even in the Old Testament, was always the heart. That's why Nicodemus was so baffled when Jesus said, you must be born again. This is not a flesh and blood issue. This is a heart issue. And so people are born into the kingdom by heart conversion. And that supersedes the genealogical covenant people that are the Jews. And this comes very clear in Isaiah 56. Listen to this. Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and all my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds fast to this and keeps the Sabbath and not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing evil. So all that is covenant community stuff that reflects a heart change. But listen to this in verse three. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord Say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. This is like a single coming into church. You know, like I, I want to come in. It's made with all these families. They all have it figured out. They have all this joy. Where do I fit in? Surely I, I'm not part of this kingdom building family stuff. So how do I fit in? That's what this person is saying. I'll be separate from the group. I won't be included. Verse three again. And let not the eunuch, this is the pagan who finds his way into the covenant community in the Old Testament. This is a person who through providence or through paganism is a eunuch and then they believe. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. I don't fit in. I don't get to procreate. I don't get to do anything. I'm just dry. This is the answer. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, heart stuff, 
who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better, a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That's gospel language. Everlasting name will not be cut off. You're not a dry tree. You're better. Because you came in from the outside. You didn't come in religiously. You came in from a heart change. That's what the single represents. We fight for marriage. It represents Christ and his bride. We fight fight for singleness. It represents conversion. You became a son. You became a daughter through being born again. Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed. You know, he was pierced for our transgressions. Verse 5, crushed for our iniquities. Um, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace by his wounds were healed. That's gospel. Then verse 10 of that same chapter. Yet it was the will of the Lord. uh, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And then it says this phrase, he Christ shall see his offspring. Who is offspring? These are all those who are converts. Should prolong His days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And then the very next chapter, chapter 54, 1. This is why all of this makes sense. Isaiah says, sing, O barren one. Sing, rejoice. Why? And you can't have kids. This is like the idea of you're not able to procreate right now, Israel. But you're to sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Conversion. Heart conversion. That's where the children of God are born. Isaiah 56, 5. I will give my house and within my walls a monument a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and they shall not be cut off. It's like the Gentiles being grafted into the Jewish Um, line of Romans 11. We're we're grafted in. We get to be family members. Why? Because it was all about heart conversion anyway. That's what singles represent. John 3, 3, truly I say to you, Jesus said Nicodemus, you must be born again. You won't see the kingdom otherwise. Galatians 3, 6 and 8, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. It's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's Gentiles who came by faith. In you shall all the nations be blessed. All this language is heart conversions. Uh, Galatians 3.26. For in Christ, you were all sons of God through faith. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. You're born again to a living hope, to the resur- resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the undefiled, imperishable, unfading crown that's inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven. All this is applied, and I'll just go here quickly in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, okay, I'm single I'm going to show you how it's done. 1 Corinthians 7, 7, it goes, I wish that all were as I myself am. That means single. But each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, one of another. Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. Why is it good? It's the undivided devotion. 1 Corinthians 7, 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. It's always on his mind. Verse 34, and his interests are divided. 
And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit. I mean, that's like the widow of First Timothy, right? That is set apart, who can wash the feet of the, you know, of people and serve and pray. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure an undivided devotion to the Lord. We're supposed to have an undivided devotion, even if we are married, to the best of our ability, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But as a single, it comes more easily. It's a preferred exception that's based on heart change. Verse 12, how do you receive this? How do you, you have to see this through a biblical perspective. Everything in the culture is either saying, man, worship marriage, it's an idol, or flee marriage, have your own life, and then pretend to be married by going after the benefits of marriage without the covenant commitment. That's our culture we live in. Now you have a kingdom singleness where you can adopt, be, be adopted into families here, and you can live in an unfettered way. And I'm not just talking about young singles. Older singles, you should be part of families here within the church. This is what Jesus is propping up. It's his plan. The big point of 1 Corinthians 7 is verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition to which he was called. If you're called to singleness, remain in that. Embrace your lot in life. Don't waste your singleness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, let's finish with this. I pulled this again from Piper's momentary marriage, but I think it's good, especially maybe even on Memorial Day. Dietrich wasn't a, he wasn't in the military, but he was conspiring to assassinate Adolf Hitler during World War II. He was engaged to be married to Maria von Wedmeyer when he was hanged at dawn in April 9th, on April 9th, 1945, at age 39. He was a young pastor in Germany. He, he had been opposed to Nazism, was finally arrested on April 5th, 1943, for conspiring to assassinate Adolf Hitler. So he never married. He was going to be married, but he never did. He skipped the shadow on the way to the reality, the reality of heaven. Some are called to one kind of display of the worth of Christ, some to another. Martyrdom, not marriage, was his calling. All right, now this is another place where Bonhoeffer wrote in, um, about fellowship. This is where he wrote about fellowship in a book he, he wrote called Life Together. And this is the fellowship that I think he experienced in his last days with brothers in prison. But he wrote about it before he was there, I'm sure. But listen to what he said. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. The prisoner, the sick person, the Christian in exile sees in the companionship of a fellow Christian a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. Visitor and visited in loneliness recognize in each other that the Christ who is present in the body They receive and meet each other as one meets the Lord in reverence, humility, and joy. It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. Don't waste your singleness. Don't waste the fellowship that you can have. And don't 
Disparage the singles. Invite the singles. Don't waste the singles here at the church. This is all part of being devoted to the kingdom of God. Again, the end of verse 12. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this kingdom word. It is different than our culture. It's even different than the disciples were able to uh, embrace and think about. Lord, I pray that we'd have the right view of marriage and the right view of singleness here at the church. We thank you for a hard text that kind of stretches us to learn more about why it's there and, and what it means. Thank you for new people who are coming into the body of Christ now in our church to be affirmed for membership. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.